topic for now is um, the issue of Eucharistic discipline. And this would um, <clears throat> uh, have uh, two parts, I mean, understanding what that Eucharistic dis discipline would mean. It would mean <clears throat> who may actually participate in uh, the Eucharistic gathering, the Eucharistic assembly, and the Eucharistic meal, particularly. And then what are the requirements of those people who may participate? What is the discipline that is expected of them? <clears throat> Which would also mean, negatively, what would put you out of communion? See, what would put a person out of, uh, of the communion of the body of Christ? And what I'll try to do is to be as simple and direct and perhaps even prescriptional as possible. We've had a lot of rhapsodizing and reflection. Now we won't. <laughs> uh, I hope not anyway. First of all, we would say that Eucharistic discipline is simply the discipline of what is required of a Christian. Therefore, the first requirement is to be a Christian, the desire to be a Christian and actually to be a Christian. And actually to be a Christian <clears throat> means that a person believes in the gospel, and therefore <clears throat> their Lord, their master, <clears throat> the one whose slave they are, is Jesus Christ. So it's a life of complete and total obedience to Jesus Christ. Christ. And therefore, it's a life of complete and total obedience to God, the God of Jesus Christ, who, because of Jesus, <clears throat> we can relate to as Abba Father. Abba Father. So the first requirement is to have heard the gospel and to accept it, to say yes to it. And therefore, that leads to the act of acceptance, which would be to be baptized, to be baptized. And in our church tradition, as you well know, <clears throat> to be baptized means to uh, die totally to this world, and to live wholly according to the kingdom of God, which is not yet here, but we believe is coming and we pray to come. It means to live by the Holy Spirit, to be sealed by the Holy Spirit, to be branded with God's Spirit, and to live according to the Spirit of God and not to the many legions of evil spirits uh, that are rebelling against God. And to be baptized is to be a communicant. To, bap to be baptized is to be uh, a member of Christ's body, to become a son of God. And that would mean to have the relationship that Jesus Christ has with God the Father in the Holy Spirit, and we would say from all eternity, which is revealed to us and actualized and given to us through his death on the cross. 
through his broken body and his spilled blood. Those who are not baptized, not sealed, are not communicants. They may still listen to the preaching of the word. They may participate in Christian vigils and teachings. They may be struggling to live the Christian life. But they do not have the competence to offer and to receive the gifts. <laughs> to offer the whole world to God in and through Christ. And to receive the body and blood of Christ in communion. They also do not have the right or the competence to call God Father. They may not pray our Father. Only a baptized person can dare with great boldness <laughs> to call God Abba Father. In fact, there was a long time in church history when the unbaptized people were not even taught the Lord's Prayer. They didn't learn it. They didn't even know that it existed. <laughs> It was taught right before being baptized, and being baptized meant to be a communicant. So for our church, baptism, chrismation, or confirmation, and communion, they always go all together. You can't have one without the other. And our order would be baptized, which means also being sealed with the Spirit, and then receiving Holy Communion. That would be the order. Not all churches have that order, by the way. In fact, among Christians, you can find every possible order uh, that you want. Baptist churches, for example, allow people to have communion before being baptized. <laughs> and the sign of accepting faith is being baptized. <laughs> but for us, it's, I mean, and there's all other versions, but uh, for us, this, this is the order. So the first, the first uh, rule <laughs> is that uh, to participate in the Eucharistic sacrifice, to call God Father, to receive Holy Communion, to be a child of God, like Jesus, with Jesus, in Jesus, and to relate to God as Abba Father, is to believe and to be baptized. To be baptized. Um, when one is baptized, then one is given the gift, the grace, of having communion with God through Christ in the Holy Spirit. Now, that does not mean that people who are not baptized have no relation with God or no communion with God at all and so on, but they do not have the relationship to God, which we believe is the deepest, the fullest, the most perfect, which is the relationship, the communion, the kinonia, that the Son of God has with God the Father in the Holy Spirit. It's the, it's the communion of the persons of the Holy Trinity. See, that that's the communion that we enter. Now, God is acting everywhere, wherever there's anything good or beautiful. The Word of God is there. The Holy Spirit is there. People can come to church and repent, believe. But until they're ready to have Jesus as their complete and total master, to obey him in all things, and this would be the Jesus as given to us in the pages of the canonical scripture of the New Testament, the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, Acts, John, the letters of Paul, the letters ascribed to Peter and James and Jude, and the Apocalypse. That's our Jesus. That's our Jesus, period. That's our Jesus. So that Jesus has to be the one that we believe we are in communion with and who gives us communion with God and allows us to call God Abba Father. Now, it was mentioned by Paul, I believe, and others that in the early church, lots of people were in and around the church and they were hearing the teachings and so on, but they weren't baptized and so they weren't communicants. But until they were ready, really, to die totally to this world, and they were ready to live a life that virtually certainly, at least as certain as a 
human being could be, they would not apostatize from, then they would not be baptized. And that's the reason for delayed in adult baptism in the early church. It has nothing to do with knowledge. It has to do with the acceptance of the obedience to be a slave of Christ or a slave of God with Christ. See, that's what it is. And until a person's life could be totally ready to do that, then they wouldn't be baptized. And we know, for example, that St. Augustine put off baptism for a very long time because, as he said, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. <laughs> so until he was ready to live according to the church's, and not even the church's teaching, the gospel teaching, Jesus' teaching relative to his carnal life, he couldn't be baptized. St. Ambrose of Milan was elected bishop being a catechumen being not baptized. He was one of the leading members of the Church of Milan not being baptized. And he never received communion because he, being the governor and, and involved in courts and military action and economic stuff, could not cross that line to take on the discipline that a baptized person has to have. And if you read the chapter 6, in chapter 10 of the letter to the Hebrews, you can write this down, letter to the Hebrews, chapter 6 and chapter 10, I won't read it now, it claims that if you apostatize after you are baptized, after you are illumined, after you've tasted the heavenly gifts, after you've heard the word of life, after you've communed with the angels, there remains no more sacrifice for you. You're out. Doesn't necessarily mean you go to hell, but it means you deal with Jesus on your own. You know. And by the way, excommunication was not condemnation. A person might be excommunicated in order on the day of judgment to be saved, but excommunication meant a person is not living according to Christ and does not have Jesus as his or her master and Lord and is not willing to be totally obedient or fully repentant when they have failed, <laughs> when they are not obedient. Now, being baptized, then, is the first discipline, and living the baptized life. So here you could actually say, I think uh, Father Glagolev kind of obliquely uh, alluded to it, and to be honest, I wasn't paying attention very well to him. I was doing something else back there. But um, you could just use as a rule of Christian discipline the Lord's Prayer. Because Eucharistic discipline would mean that God is your Father, Abba, Father, whom you obey. And you become a child of God only in and with and through Jesus. As God's word and as God's lamb. The Logos and the lamb. It would mean that you would live a life where your life would be to hallow God's name, to call God's kingdom, uh, and to do God's will, as it's done in heaven on this earth right now. So when we pray, we say, Our Father, who art in the heavens. And then these three sentences go together with the end. And they go like this, if you read it properly. Your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done, as in the heavens, Hosen Urano, so also on this earth. Que epitis gis. We say on earth as it is in heaven. It should be as in the heavens, so also on earth. And as in the heavens means in Jesus at the right hand of the Father. That's what it means. Because Jesus alone hallows God's name. Jesus alone is in God's kingdom and brings God's kingdom. And Jesus alone has done the will of the Father. So we say to God, 
You are our Abba Father in Jesus, and therefore we want your kingdom to come, your will to be done, and your name to be sanctified, and you sanctify God's name by doing his will. And those three things amount to the same thing. There are actually three ways of saying exactly the same thing. Because <laughs> if God's name is hallowed, it means his kingdom has come. <laughs> it means if God's kingdom has come, it means his will is done. If his will is done, it means his name is hallowed. <laughs> and those three things modify as in heaven, so on earth. Meaning, as in Jesus, so also among us. And the most repeated line of the Old Testament in the New is that Jesus Christ, who was crucified, is glorified in the heavens at the right hand of the Father, living to make intercession on our behalf until he returns in glory to establish God's kingdom throughout the universe. But for those who are baptized, you're already living according to the kingdom of God. And then the next sentence says, Give us today the epiusios artos. <laughs> And epiusios artos means Jesus. He is the bread of life. He is the super substantial bread. So it says, give us today the bread of life, that is, Christ himself, as word and as lamb. Both as word and as lamb. Feed us the bread that if we eat it, we never die, which is Jesus himself, who is glorified at the right hand of the Father, in whom God's name is hallowed, in whom God's kingdom has come, and in whom God's will is done. <laughs> and it doesn't mean bread like rye bread. It doesn't mean daily. It doesn't mean that. In Matthew it says, give us today the bread of the future age. And probably epiusos artos means the bread of the age to come, who is Jesus. And we say it right before Holy Communion, by the way. <laughs> you know. So it says, give us daily, or according to the day, in Luke it's kathimeron, in Matthew it's simeron, today, or according to the day, the epiusios artos. And both versions of the Lord's Prayer have that funny expression, which is a hapax legomenon. It's the only time in the entire Bible that that word is used. And nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> but what it means is from above, or heavenly, or divine, or of the future age, or whatever. That's what it is. The bread that if you eat it, you never die. It's John 6, you see. That's what it is. <laughs> right? Then it says, forgive us our, what we owe as we already have forgiven, Aorist, those who owe us. See? In Luke's Gospel it says, forgive us our sins, hamartias, as we forgive those or have forgiven those who have, who owe us. Now, according to the scripture, the only thing we owe is to love one another and keep God's law. And that's how Jesus expiates uh, on the cross by his broken body and spilled blood, the sin of the world. Because he does, he's the only one who fills the debt, pays the debt, and does what is owed. And what, it, what is owed is to be righteous, to keep God's law, to keep the commandments, and to obey God even unto death. There's only one human being who did that, Jesus. So when we say, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us, it means that we know we're forgiven by God and therefore we have to forgive others. See, So that's a condition. <laughs> and then when it says, um, lead us not into temptation, you see, what that really means is, we are being put to the test, this famous test. The dokimi and all that. We are being tested. And it was the final tribulation of living in this world in the face of the Antichrist. 
So it says, when we are tested, don't let us fall. That's what it means. Let us endure the test. <laughs> See? What test? The test of the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus. <laughs> See? That's the test. To be faithful to him and obedient to him just to death the way he did. By his grace. And deliver us from the evil one or from the Antichrist. Let us serve only Christ. So the Lord's Prayer is the condition for Eucharistic communion. <laughs> it's the rule. If you say the Lord's Prayer and mean it, you can have communion. But mean it for what it says. See, not for what you'd like to have it say. <laughs> See? So it means to have Jesus as Lord and God as Father, and therefore to be, have the Holy Spirit in you. Because you can't call Jesus Lord, and you can't call God Father without the Holy Spirit in you. Now, another way of putting that can quickly and easily be found, and there's lots of places here, Romans 12 to 14, the Sermon on the Mountain, uh, Galatians, uh, whatever it is, I have it written down. But I'll just read Colossians, the third chapter of Colossians. This is, this is Eucharistic discipline. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above in the heavens, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, our Father who art in the heavens, right? <laughs> that's, where, that's what you seek. That's where you live. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, as in the heavens, so also on earth. <laughs> so that's the way it moves, you see. Actualize on earth what has been actualized already in Jesus. For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. You have died in baptism, and you die. Every time you eat the broken body and the spilled blood, you die. You proclaim his death as Father Terazzi very strongly pointed out. And, it, and, in a, and it's right. It doesn't say a word about his resurrection. <laughs> but we know that he's glorified. But it says, For you have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So he appears to us in his word, he appears to us in the, as the Lamb of God in the broken body and spilled blood, but he has not yet appeared in glory. He appears to us in mystery, you see, in the, in the life of the community, in his body, in those who call God Abba Father, in those who have Jesus as Lord. He appears. He's in the midst of us. <laughs> you see, he is our life, but we're still praying for him to appear. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven and so on. We're praying this, you see, but we're still waiting for it to happen and we're living according to it. That's the condition for communion. That's the condition for communion. Then it says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then you have fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you once walked when you lived in them. But you no longer live in them because you live in Christ and you're dead with him and glorified at the right hand of the Father and your food is his broken body and spilled blood. So you're no longer in those things. Then it says, Now put away them all, anger, wrath, malice, slander, foul talk. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off, it says here, the old nature. In Greek it says the old anthropos, the old Adamic humanity, the humanity according to Adam, you see. And with its practices, and have put on the new anthropos, that's Jesus, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we're made in God's image and likeness, and Jesus is the image and likeness of God. The image and likeness of God according to which we are created is Jesus. 
Hosestini Contutheu, St. Paul says. He is the icon of God. So then it says, here, here, in this kind of a community, there cannot be Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. So Christ is all and in all. And in the Galatian line, it says, all those who have been baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male and female. We are all one in Christ who is, brings God to be all and in all. So to ha Eucharistic discipline is to live in a situation where Christ is all and in all, all the time. <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> That's the condition for participating in Holy Communion. That's the condition. Therefore, if that's so, then you have to put away fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, foul talk, and all those things. Then it says, but then you put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, patience, forbearing one another, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's the Lord's Prayer, right? As, so you must be in a state of constant realization that you are a worthless sinner who is constantly being forgiven, and therefore you forgive the other people who are sinning against you. So this forgiveness is, uh, is this condition. Then it says, and above all, Put on love, because God is love. So love is the condition. Love is the condition. That's why we say, let us love one another before we uh, uh, do the anaphora. You have to have love. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. This is the condition. It's right built into the liturgy, liturgical text, right? Then it says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. How many times we say at the liturgy, peace be unto all. We've got to be at peace or you can't receive communion. If you're not at peace, you can't receive communion. See. Um, with yourself, with God, and with your neighbor. And then it says, let the peace of Christ rule, rule, reign in your heart, to which you were indeed called in the one body. And the one body is the body of Christ. Therefore, you participate in the Eucharistic body. And then the Eucharistic body shows you that you are one body of Christ. And here I'd like to make a little comment. You know, traditionally, people used to have the big argument about the real presence in the Eucharist. And so it got, it got to be almost like common speech to say that the Holy Communion elements are the real body of Christ, the real presence. You know, we stand for that, we Orthodox. And then we speak about the church as the mystical body of Christ. You know, you've heard the church talked about the mystical body of Christ. Well, my hunch is that according to the scripture, it's just the exact opposite that's the truth. <laughs> the church is the real body of Christ. <laughs> the people are the real body of Christ. And the bread and the wine are the mystical body of Christ. <laughs> it's just the other way around, <laughs> according to the scripture. But the body of Christ, and we have this in Corinthians, and we've heard about it enough. So we are in this one body. That's why the community is the second point there. The one body, the communion. The kinonia. You see, your baptism brings you into this community, this community, the one body. And then it says, to which indeed you are called in one body. And then the next sentence say, says, Ke efharisti geneste. Ke efharisti geneste. It says in English, and be thankful. Or King James says, be ye thankful. But what it says is, be Eucharistic. Because <laughs> Eucharist is Thanksgiving. So if you read it in Greek, it says, Ke efharisti geneste. 
Be, be Eucharist. <laughs> Become Eucharists. <laughs> See, Become Eucharists is literally what it says. Become yourself Eucharists. <laughs> you see, living, thanksgiving realities. See? And then it says, um, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, because you can't be Eucharists unless the word is in you. And we've said enough, and we can't say enough, that the Eucharist has to do with the word, first and foremost. You cannot participate with proper discipline in the, in the bread and the wine unless you are first communing in the word and obedient to the word and following the word and inspired by the word and obeying the word. <laughs> you see, that's the condition. That's the condition. So it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So every two minutes we're saying, wisdom let us attend, wisdom let us attend, right? So it's all wisdom, the word of God, and we did a Lenten retreat this spring I did on wisdom, let us attend. There's five hours of tapes just on wisdom, let us attend, if you want to buy them. Um, and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, right? We just heard about that from Father Glagolev, right? Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And then it says, in, in RSV, it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In Greek it says, Ephcharistundes to Theopatri diafton. It says, being Eucharistic to God, the Father, through him. <laughs> you see? That be, being thankful, it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it would say, Ephcharistundes. You see, it's a present participle. Eucharistizing <laughs> through him, uh, to the Father, rather, the Afton, through him. You see, that's a, a, a classical text that you could, you could see how the whole thing works. So therefore, the Eucharistic discipline would be to be a Christian, to have this reality, and then to identify oneself completely and totally as a member of this community, of those people who belong to Christ and form one body with him, because Jesus is the master and God is the father. We're all dead, we all live in heaven, we are all at the right hand of the Father. We are all living so that God's name would be hallowed, so that God's kingdom would come, so that God's will would be done. We are all participating day by day in Christ himself, who is the Epiusios Artos, the superessential bread. We are constantly forgiving one another as, as we have been forgiven ourselves, And we're constantly being tested and prayed to God that we would stand in the test and not to capitulate to the evil one. <laughs> See, that's, that's, that's the discipline. Now, where that exists a person may receive communion. Where it doesn't exist, they may not. It's as simple as that. <laughs> Where that exists, a person is a communicant. Where it doesn't, they're not. And they may not. So, the first thing that we have to see, if you just put it in a list, is you must completely and totally identify with the church, the, the body of Christ, the community. It's not an individual matter. It's a communal matter. And, and that's, that's one of the big differences. Holy Communion was, like it has been said many times already, was considered just an individual matter. Me and Jesus making my communion. Well, baloney. It's not that way at all. It's a total identification with the church community, taking full and complete total responsibility for its entire faith in life. If we do not find ourselves as a member of the church, or even more accurately, a member of Christ and therefore the church... Because we are Meli Christu, not only members of the church, we are members of Christ. 
See? So you can commune if you're a member of Christ. <laughs> and you identify yourself as a member of Christ, which means you have no life in yourself. Your only life is Christ. When Christ who is our life appears, he is our life. So un unless Christ is our life, we are communing unto condemnation and judgment. And we just better not commune. Better not to commune. So we have to make that confession, and therefore it means we identify ourselves with the community, so when it gathers, we're there. We show up. <laughs> we're there. Our baptism obliges us to stand there with those other people and to say we are members one of another, and we pray that we would have with one mind and one heart and one mouth and love one another. I mean, that's how we say the whole liturgy, <laughs> right? We do it as a member of the community of God, the people of God, the church. So a person has to be completely and totally identified with the church to be a communicant. And it's this church, not some other church. <laughs> it's this church. <laughs> it's this gathering. It's these people. It's this bishop. It's this tradition. It's this prayer. Not some other one. And certainly not the one that I make up myself. Because I enter into it because it's already there. Now, I have to make the act of faith. I have to retrieve my baptism every day, you know. I have to identify myself this way every day. That's why every day we say the Lord's Prayer seven times a day. That's why every day we should say the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed at least once a day in the singular. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and so on. So the first thing is you are identified with this community so that the very first condition in the membership of that community is you hold its faith. That's why faith is the next letter there. And in a sense, one of the reasons for at least an annual confession, it may even, first of all, have nothing to do with repenting of your sins. It just might be the annual report to the head of the church that you are, what is the status of your baptism? Do you still believe all this? And in the manuals for confession, the first question the priest was supposed to ask the person is, do you accept the faith of the church? Do you doubt any of the articles of faith? Do you believe in the gospel? You're supposed to check the person's faith. So if a person believes in transmigration of souls or doesn't believe that Christ has really risen from the dead or whatever, they may not receive Holy Communion. So you're, you are, the priest's job is to check the people's faith. And in fact, the bishop's job is to check each other's faith to make sure that every church has the same faith. Because we say... A unity of faith we pray for. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, one teaching, one doctrine. So when you have essential differences of faith, you cannot have communion. You cannot have communion. And that's why churches don't have communion with each other, is because they don't recognize in each other their very same faith. That's where churches break communion. <laughs> Now, sometimes it could be a terrible misunderstanding, or sometimes it can be whatever, but the unity of faith is crucial. So anyone who would doubt or teach or proclaim or live by some aspect, something that is a contrary to the gospel, may not receive Holy Communion. They may not. If they do, they receive unto condemnation and judgment. Better not to receive. <laughs> and it's the priest's job to be aware of what's going on. And if they know that a person is not believing the teachings of... And, you, and I don't like expression, teaching of the church. 
I mean, you have to use that. But in fact, in our church, we don't believe our teachings are the teachings of the church. We believe they're the teachings of God <laughs> and of Christ. <laughs> you know, people sometimes say, oh, the church teaches this, the church teaches that. I say, the church doesn't teach that. Jesus teaches that. <laughs> Forget about the church. <laughs> you know, so if Jesus is your master and Lord, you've got to do what he teaches. So you can't be living in fornication and go to Holy Communion because he teaches you can't do that. Period. So if a couple are living together and they're not married, they may not have Holy Communion. Period. Period. <laughs> because they're not living according to the teaching of Christ. I even asked the person once, why do you want communion with Christ when you obviously disagree with him? <laughs> what will communion mean, you know, <laughs> if he's not your teacher, your rabbi, your master, your Lord, to whom you obey totally? You can't be disobedient. And being in communion with him doesn't even make any sense. <laughs> no? So the, the teaching and the faith is absolutely essential. And I think it's something that we don't pay enough attention to. We have people in our church going to communion all the time with believing in transmigration of souls and reincarnation and don't think that Jesus is really risen from the dead or, or whatever, you know. Uh, well, that can't be. Now you can say, well, you can't check everybody, and everybody probably has some mistakes or other. And as a matter of fact, we all do. If you give everybody an exam, they probably wouldn't pass a dogmatic exam. You know, they'd have, but their intention would be to live by the faith of the church. See, They would know. They would think that they are. And that was Father Paul's answer the other day, Father Paul Terazzi. You see, If it's the Lord's table, then you have to come thinking that you're following the teaching of the Lord. And if it can be demonstrated to you that you're not, then you may not have Holy Communion. <laughs> and you should be honest enough to say that you're not. And not say, well, I'll go anyway and I'll take my chances with Jesus and I love my girlfriend anyway or something, you know. If you're extorting money in the bank or if you're, you know, I don't know what, you know. You just can't. You cannot. So the, the faith is important and the obedience to the faith is crucial. The person has to be obedient to the faith, struggling to be obedient to the faith. Now, we could say, okay, all this is great, but who can do it? And the answer here would be, with God, all things are possible. So when we do not do it, it's because we're not in God. <laughs> so our church does teach that we have to constantly come to God confessing the fact that we don't do it. <laughs> And even Holy Communion is for the forgiveness of the sins that we have being baptized people, because we have sins. <laughs> See, to be a Christian is not to be sinless. To be a Christian is to know what the truth is and to try to do it and admit it when you don't and not justify yourself. So here we could say, any sinner can come to communion as long as they're not justifying themselves. <laughs> as long as they're saying, yeah, I know I'm not following Christ's teaching, God forgive me. But if a person says, yeah, I know that I'm not following the teaching of the gospel, but I don't even believe it, then they may not have communion. Or if a person says, yeah, I know I'm not following the teaching of the gospel, but I still think that there's nothing wrong with what I do and so on, then they may not have communion either. <laughs> and they may not have communion either. But if a person says, I know what the teaching of the gospel is, and I know that I'm not doing it, God be merciful to me, a sinner. God help me to, to change God give me the grace to participate. Then that is communion in a worthy manner. <laughs> because being worthy doesn't mean sinless. 
In 1 Corinthians 11, when it speaks about anaxios, it's an adverb, not anaxios like an adjective, but anaxios with an omega means unworthily or in an unworthy manner. The unworthy manner isn't that you're, you have sins. The unworthy manner is that you're not discerning the Lord's body and you're not realizing what you're doing and you don't care and you're sinning against it. That's the unworthy manner. That's the unworthy manner. So every liturgy, we're constantly praying for the forgiveness of sins. And even the Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. So we know that we're sinning. That's no, no surprise, so to speak. Um, so the sin is there. So the constant confession of sin is a, is a requirement for participation. Confession. There's got to be constant confession of where we actually stand. We have to be willing to give an account. We have to willing to be tested. See? And that is uh, an, act, an act that's actually must be performed. There must be constant admission of what's going on. And this is not only important, you know, for our spiritual life so we don't end up in delusion and stuff like that, but it's important because it is an expression of the truth of our standing before God. See? That we admit exactly where we're standing before God. See? Whatever the reasons, whatever the causes, whatever, we just admit that this is where we are. So you could say that the uh, Eucharistic discipline requires a person, if they're going to participate in a worthy manner, to admit that they're a sinner before the face of God, knowing what God's truth is, confessing that they don't do it, but begging God for the help to. Then you may receive Holy Communion. <laughs> Otherwise, you may not. Otherwise, you may not. Now, if the confession is real, then there has to be acts of repentance, signs of actual repentance. See? Signs of actual repentance. That would mean sharing your goods with the poor, helping the others, uh, trying to, to live according to the actual teachings. <laughs> you see, there has to be actually signs that a person is actually struggling to live this life. You see? even knowing that they'll fall seven times in a day. The book of Proverbs says, the righteous person falls seven times a day, but stands up again. <laughs> Siloan says, you know the Holy Spirit is in you if you hate your sin and fight against it. Not if you don't have any. But you at least have to admit that you're a sinner. <laughs> you see, Father Shmemon used to make a play on words and say, the condition for a worthy communion is to confess that you're not worthy. And if you know from your gut that you're not worthy, then you'll participate in a worthy manner. <laughs> but the minute you think you're worthy, or you have the right, or you do what you want it, or you make it mean what you want it to mean, then that's just blasphemy, sacrilege, and, and hell. You know, which according to the letter to the Hebrews, there's no repentance for. It's the unforgivable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You know. And Professor Verhofsky used to say, one communion done with that attitude is enough to put you in hell forever. He used to say. <laughs> I still get the chills when I think of it. Um, but that is the holiness of what we are doing. And then these acts of repentance, certainly among them, the first and foremost would be that you judge no one for anything. You totally forgive those who, forgive, who are sinning against you. That's the greatest sign of the divine love and the, and the presence of the kingdom of God. And you are at least are praying for the desire to forgive everyone. And that's why if you are not at peace with anyone, you may not receive Holy Communion. 
Jesus said, if you go to the altar and you're offering your gift and your brother has something against you, you go to him first, then you make up and then you come. Once I had a, a penitent come to me, and it was in my first church <laughs> where I was the first pastor, and I asked her if she um, had any enemies, and she said, are you kidding? I'm in business. But, um, uh, but anyway, anyway, one of the things that she said, I'm not telling her confession because you don't know her anything, but I have to make this point. She was having trouble with a, a sister of hers, and she told me, uh, she said in confession, when I asked her, is there anyone you don't speak to at all? And she said, yes, as a matter of fact, I don't speak to my sister. She's really awful, this and that. I said, did you, do you try to forgive her? I won't forgive her. Huh? Then I said, well, did you at least try? Do you at least want to? You know, Would you do that? And so on. And she says, well, I guess if I have to. I said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you just call her up and say, I'm really sorry if I offended you in any way, and may God forgive us, and let's try to meet, you know, and something like that. And she says, you mean I really have to do that? And I said, yeah, you really have to do that, or you can't have Holy Communion, you know. So she says, oh, okay, I guess I'll do that. So I said, all right, this was a Saturday morning. It was a Saturday morning during Lent. That's how the people used to do in those days. They'd all line up on Saturdays, you know, not to take time on Sunday. And um, so I said, okay, you do it today, and then come tomorrow, you know, come back tomorrow, and we'll have the prayer, and you have Holy Communion. And she said, you mean I can't have it today? And I said, well, I think it's better not to. You know, do this first, see what happens, and then come back. You're not sick, you're not dying or anything, and, and it'll be perfectly okay. You know, you, you'll be clear and so on. She says, so you won't give it to me now if I promise to do it? And I said, well, I really would prefer not to. I mean, is there any reason you can't come back tomorrow? She said, no, I can come. So I said, okay, this is what we'll do. You go and you do it, and then you come back tomorrow. And she looked at me and she said, oh, jeez, I fasted for nothing. 